They say that around 80% of New Year's resolutions will fail by mid-February. Now that's an awful lot of promises to revise harder for students and I'll stay stress-free for parents that will have fallen by the wayside. But these things are important to see through. So just how is it that we could gear ourselves up for success and try to make new, better habits stick? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our third season of the podcast, we're chatting with parents, students and teachers to hear how things are going. Specifically, of course, we're interested in the highs and lows, the trials and tribulations in the run-up to exams in 2022. We'll be covering everything from trouble getting going to burning the candle at both ends, from students who are overzealous and anxious to those who are underperforming yet nonchalant. Through these shared real-world experiences, I hope that you'll take comfort that you're not alone. Perhaps, more importantly, I hope too that you'll take away some insights and some advice that will help you to support your own team so that they'll not just survive the exams, but thrive in the preparation. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be chatting with behavioural change expert Shuru Izadi, author of the genuinely inspiring The Kindness Method. Hi, Shuru. It's lovely to have you back on the show. Let's start by thinking about the phenomena that is New Year's resolutions. Why is it that we put off our grand plans, whether it's a healthier lifestyle or revising harder, to some future landmark point, whether that's the 1st of January or simply next Monday? I think anything that's an undesirable task or we know that's going to be difficult or challenge us or require impulse control or a disruption to our sort of comfortable routine, it feels quite natural to put that off for as long as we can and to maintain the status quo. And I think very often we underestimate how comfortable the status quo is and the fact that it kind of serves us to keep things as they are, even if the only reason it serves us is because it's it's what we know. So I think people are often underestimate how much it takes to move to move away from that, and certainly with any urgency. I definitely, are. from my recollections of youth, which obviously are a bit hazy because it was quite a while ago. But that whole thing about revising and studying, and you, you, yeah, I will. But let me just get let me just get this out of the way. Or I can't possibly start today because it's midweek. Why would you do that? Even though you know it's going to be a, a huge benefit actually is there's that I guess it's almost like a sense of urgency that we're missing is it yeah I think sometimes we assume that we kind of need that deadline too to speed us up a bit and I think often the problem is that we're thinking about the task itself as opposed to thinking of the feeling we'll have if we manage to get it off the list which can help enormously if we think more like by the end of today how do I want to feel I want to feel calm and accomplished and productive then all of a sudden the undesirable task becomes a tiny bit more compelling but I think what we, the mistake we can make is thinking that we can make the task desirable. You know, I might love revising or I might, you know, I, I might come to love it as opposed to accepting that you might not love the task itself, but rather the feeling that you have once you've completed it, which can make it more compelling, I think. So that sounds like it's as much sort of a, a much more positive mindset shift that we're looking for, not just a determination and a resolution to, to crack on. No, I think that determination and resolution can sometimes leave us disillusioned because it doesn't, it's hard to sustain that over time. And I think sometimes when we look at people who 
um, appear to have willpower, for example, we attribute that to them because they are people who know that there will be periods in the day when they want to throw in the towel and have prepared to not do so, <laughs> have already re- you know, resolved to not do so. They're not anticipating that there won't be challenges throughout the day. So that's a, an interesting twist then, because I think, well, certainly from my own perspective, if I've delayed a new health regime um, or getting on with like life admin or whatever else it is that as adults we delay and procrastinate over i tend to put it off with this i guess building up a sense of optimism because if i if i put it off until monday and i live my fullest life <laughs> over the weekend and until then well then i'm bound to be in a much better state of mind to do it whereas actually what you're saying is if i accept that i've never been able to sustain a health regime for an especially long period of time, I can gear myself up to those pitfalls and failings, I guess, in inverted commas. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think the issue is often wanting to start or desire or having all the information that you need to create a decent plan. I think what we're often missing is are the tools to respond differently when plans don't go to plan so that we don't find ourselves in that sort of spiraling, I've blown it, all or nothing mentality, nothing can start until Monday and then uh, damage or neglect is done until then. And so I think that's the thing. The problem isn't the planning. It's not the colour coding of the rotors and the, the revision plans and all of those things. It's what you do when you don't want to do it and what you do when you haven't done it that I think dictates whether you see things through long term. And so assuming that there will be moments where you want to throw in the towel is a pretty safe bet. And it can be feel very empowering to preemptively decide how you will behave when you're challenged and see opportunities to demonstrate new responses to the stress or the anxiety or the boredom or whatever it is you're trying to distract from. Presumably quite often you can predict where your stumbling blocks are going to come from. We've, We've typically done these things before. Yeah, I think we can predict where our stumbling blocks will come from. But sometimes by the time it's a stumbling block, it's a bit too late to do anything in there preemptively. So I think one thing that that can be better is to think about, okay, the times when I make the best decisions for myself and I feel the most productive and motivated and like, you know, my values and my behaviors are aligning. What else tends to be going on? What other habits do I tend to be engaging in? Uh, You know, what time do I tend to be waking up? Do I tend to be drinking water? Am I taking breaks throughout the day? Am I connecting with other people? And And then we realize that actually it's not just preempting, you know, the tasks that are undesirable because we're not as good at them or they're boring. Um, It's preempting the conditions under which we're likely to abandon those tasks or trivialize the importance of them. And that's why I think taking more of a daily, looking at it as more of a daily commitment of filling your bucket or whatever with whatever you can that makes you feel that little bit more resilient and that little bit more like you've got impulse control or that little bit less inclined to indulge the excuses and the justifications to start tomorrow. Whatever you can do to put yourself in that state as frequently as possible and for as long as possible, the better. Are there any particular, I guess there might be a myriad of them, uh, approaches that students could use in particular? Because I'm I'm guessing that this isn't um, waking up one morning and having a eureka moment. I know what's going to, I know what this is going to be about. And so I'm, I'm ready. How would you advise that students sort of go about thinking this? I think in the first instance, it can be helpful to do a bit of a compassionate sort of curious inquiry into periods in the past where you have felt really motivated and to kind of think what was going on at the time. What sort of supports were in place? 
what sorts of supports made me feel encouraged and productive and what sorts of supports didn't suit me, you know, made me feel shamed or whatever else, you know, we all have different approaches. And I think a lot of the time we beat ourselves up when we aren't able to implement the plan, assuming that the plan, because it's well-informed and well-intentioned, should be enough to carry us through. And we haven't taken any sort of bespoke approach to it and thought, actually, the last times I decided I was going to wake up at 6am, it ended up being a false economy. And I threw in the whole towel Hmm. or, you know, for most people having an accountability buddy is really helpful. But for me, it's not, it makes me feel stressed and under pressure. And when I'm stressed and under pressure, I'm less inclined to do work, you know? So I think it's about really giving yourself the permission, not this, you know, this personal development stuff I often say is not about finding yourself. It's about sort of meeting yourself where you are honestly and looking at what tends to be going on when you feel good. And what tends to be going on when you feel proud of yourself and you feel more able to keep your long-term goals in mind. So for me, for example, it seems like a really small thing, but if I shower first thing in the morning, as opposed to in the evening, I notice that I'm more inclined to make a healthy breakfast choice. And then I'm more inclined to take a bit of time for myself. You know, just these acts of self-care, which seem quite small and to the outside world would have nothing to do with whether or not I do that invoicing spreadsheet at 4 p.m. that I really don't want to do because I hate spreadsheets, you know. But for me, it's actually quite a direct link Hmm. because I've identified the cluster of associations that I have with taking care of myself, doing difficult things, and I have intentionally imposed them into my day. And for different people, it will be totally different things. It could be the time you eat lunch, what you eat for lunch, whether you talk to your friends, the boundaries that you have with social media. You know, some people see it as a fantastic little break and an escape. Other people see it as a debilitating, anxiety-inducing hellhole. So, you know, it's, I guess my answer to that is do an inquiry into what sorts of conditions seem to make you feel strong and resilient and productive. Because I love that, that actually, that the, the small thing that the starting the day in the right way for you, as you say, getting getting showered early on, so you know you're, you're taking care. I guess it gives you a small little buzz, doesn't it? A little bit of euphoria that shows you that you're already doing things in the right way, which helps just drive you onto the next thing, which will help you feel like you're doing it in the same way. Absolutely, and not just that; it also reminds you that you're on a mission of sorts, which I think reminds you that you're trying to do something difficult. And so you can focus more on creating an environment that makes it easier to do difficult things, you know, making it as pleasant for yourself as you can. Um, But yeah, I think the routine thing in the morning can help people enormously because as you say, the way that I see it is that you're giving yourself signals all day that you matter and that your experience matters and that you're worthy of being taken care of in various ways and invested in. And so if you can pepper those acts throughout the day, and I mean little things, like for example, if I'm sitting and writing, I might think, okay, how can I make this more pleasant? I'm going to light a candle. I'm going to put on some classical music. I'm going to make a lovely cup of herbal tea. That changes my approach to the undesirable task. You know, it's a it's an act of self-care that is essentially the subtext is, this is difficult. You don't want to do this. So let me make it easier for you. Let me make it more pleasant for you. So, but I guess that the downside of having sort of that that early morning signal that I'm in I'm in control and I'm I'm well on track for my mission is if for one reason or another, whether it's in or outside of your control, you you didn't get to have that shower. I think for many of us, and I hold my hand up, um, 
that for me would then be the signal, well, in which case they're not going to bother with the healthy breakfast, possibly the donuts. How do we, I suppose, avoid that um, sort of just get, well, that's it. It's all over and done with. If I didn't start my revision exactly at two o'clock on the dot and now it's two minutes past, I'm just not going to bother. There's no point. I've, I've already lost today. I'll try again tomorrow. One of the things you can do is appeal to common sense and think about what, what you would say to someone who was asking for your advice, someone who you wanted to succeed and you really care about. If they'd said, look, I started two minutes late, you wouldn't say, well, then you've ruined it. You can't study at all. Your brain will absorb nothing today. The other thing you can do is start to stack those habits. So you can look at things like, okay, first and foremost, I want to create this habit in, in isolation. It's got nothing to do with some larger project of turning into a whole new person who's also a genius and also an Olympian and whatever else we do on Sunday evenings when we decide to create plans for ourselves. You know, you want to pick one, do that one in a row for as long as you can. And then once you feel comfortable that you can do it and you're reaping the benefits, pick another one and then pick another one and then pick another one. Otherwise, you're right. It's, it can be tempting to turn them into one whole plan that either. And if you're a perfectionist, then remembering that you're making progress can be really difficult if you deviate from your plan, even temporarily. And if you're someone who goes on to beat themselves up internally, then that can extend the amount of time that it takes you to get back on track with any plan. And so that's where forgiving yourself quickly comes in and becomes very, very important. Really, no more quickly than you forgive anyone else. You know, a lot of the time I say to myself, I have to say to people, I'm not asking you to be any kinder to yourself than you are to anyone else. I'm just asking you to be fair. Mm. There seems to be a real thing, isn't there, that, um, as you said, you sat there on a Sunday night and you're making plans of flick through the um, juicing diet book or whatever whatever else it is that I might be, that, that my life needs at that moment. And and on Sunday, I'm inspired. I'm, I'm ready to do it and I can tackle it. But something you mentioned earlier, I think, we, we lose sight of the fact that actually this is going to be really, really difficult. And do you think we're, we undermine ourselves by, by downplaying just how difficult it is, I guess, at the expense of trying to motivate ourselves? Because if we were to accept how absolutely near Herculean revision is, actually, we'd probably never embark on it in the first place. I think we do underestimate it, but not underestimate the complexity of the task, rather underestimate how difficult it is to create a new routine. I think that's what we need to think about. And what we do is we focus on the negatives of not changing. You know, if I don't change, I will not pass my exams. Then this will happen. Then that will happen. You know, I'm weak because I won't change despite having all the information that I need. I'm stupid, et cetera, et cetera. Aside from the fact that that's not helpful, it doesn't give you any insight into why you're finding it difficult to, to change. And that's what we underestimate, how difficult it is to change. And the insight that we require into ourselves and the plan itself to really understand why it's benefiting us to stay the same way and why it's benefiting us to delay changing. That is the insight that, that you need to really understand and give yourself compassion for why you're finding it difficult to change, even though it's objectively seemingly easy, you know do this stuff, sit down, read this stuff, you know, objectively speaking, it can really reinforce this idea that we're stupid or there's something wrong with us if we can't do something despite having very clear guidelines and very clear outcomes, almost formulaic ones. It isn't that the task is so hard a lot of the time. It's that creating the habit for long enough for it to become easy, for the task to become easier and there be an element of mastery is harder than people give it credit for. 
even if it's a nice thing, you know, I often say like, even if every day you weren't used to picking flowers every day and I asked you to pick flowers every day, you'd find it difficult. It's an adjustment. That's what we underestimate, that when the adjustment is going to benefit us long term or short term, we underestimate how difficult it will be to make. And we focus on making the task easier as opposed to focusing on reminding ourselves of how capable we are of doing difficult things. Because hmm. it doesn't seem to matter how, how beneficial the outcome of that adjustment, as you say, would be. So I'm, I'm thinking now as, as a parent talking to my teen children about whether or not they should revise, which is conversations that's happening in hundreds of thousands of households up and down the country. And just say, but I don't understand because if you were to just try, actually your life will be so much easier. You won't fail. You'll get good grades. You'll go on and do all the things that you want to do. And it's that understanding, I guess, as, as a parent, that actually because we can see that and we have just made presumptions about how easy those adjustments will be for our children, that we're not connecting in the right way to really see it from their own perspective. I think it's because, and I think we can all relate to this as adults too, that our relationship to the outcome is very different to our relationship with the behavior itself. So anyone who's tried to, I don't know, manage their weight or something like this will will relate to this. They'll think, why is it, despite knowing I want the outcome so badly more than anything, I can't change the behavior in the moment? And that's because it's really ambitious to think that you're going to be able to project into the future gratification. (laughs) Or it's really ambitious in that moment where your relationship with the behavior or the absence of behavior is so strong that you think that the promise of a reward at some point in the future is going to be compelling enough to tear you away from your your status quo. It's too um, it's too ambitious, I think. Now, of, of course, we can we can reframe to, to think more long term. One of my friends um, very helpfully says, uh, "You sacrifice what you want now for what you want really," which I really like. But actually, I think it's more important to see it as behavioral change to see in that moment regardless of the outcome regardless of whether you get a job from this act or regardless of whether you get into university as a result of this do this to demonstrate to yourself that you can do it in a much you know more zoomed out project of building your self-belief and your self-awareness and your self-compassion it's a far more fundamental project when you focus on the behavior not the outcome and the beha- you know the byproduct of the behaviors that you and I are discussing will invariably be the the desired outcome anyway, but it can be really helpful not to because then that becomes another thing we beat ourselves up about. If I know the outcome, why am I continuing to do this? Do I hate myself? Am I sabotaging myself? Uh, sometimes, but most of the time when I'm speaking to people, it's because they have been way too reliant on the promise of future gains, not even the promise, the prospect of future gains to help them get through a current urge or craving or complete an undesirable task in this moment. That needs to be almost gamified in its own sense. You almost need to be like, I want to do this because I want to do it and I want to demonstrate that I can do it and I want to feel good today about that. Hmm. And because it's because what we're talking about here are long, longer term goals, um, even if we don't couch them as being the destination how important is sort of keeping an eye and and reassuring yourself of progress along this particular journey really important I think a lot of us can relate to thinking back to the last time we felt really proud of ourselves we normalized it really quickly you know maybe you got a mark that you were particularly 
proud of and before you know it you're moving on to the next thing and focusing on the good marks you didn't get etc etc and aside from the fact that we deserve to feel proud of ourselves for longer what we do when we normalize and trivialize our accomplishments is that we deprive ourselves of an opportunity to inform the way that we speak to ourselves and to become progressively more ambitious with the tests that we put ourselves in front of because what it doesn't do is when when we don't do that we neglect to update these truths about ourselves and what we're capable of you know we might still be running on outdated information based on you know three years ago when we didn't have as as many accomplishments. And so from my perspective and the work that I do, which is focused on getting people to speak to themselves differently so they make different choices, it's enormously important to start clocking when you're doing things that you're proud of yourself for. So like, for example, I highly recommend, A, anyone listening to this, put 15 minutes aside and write down a list of things that you're proud of yourself for, the difficult periods that you've got through, anything that demonstrates how resilient and capable you are. And then take a picture of that and keep it on your phone. And every time you doubt yourself or your capacity to do something difficult, glance at it. Because it's going to be impossible in that moment to bring to the forefront of your mind all your positives and your resources when, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, even you're, you're wired to think about your threats and your deficits, right? So you want to bring to the forefront of your mind why I'm capable and why I needn't doubt myself in this moment. And I think as a regular practice, whether it's daily, just for a couple of minutes at the end of the day or at the end of the week, reflect back, whatever it is, start to populate that list of things that you're proud of yourself for, because it will start to inform the debates that you have internally when those self-limiting beliefs come in and you actually have some fodder. You know, you can actually say, oh, I, I seem to be hearing that I'm the sort of person who quits all the time, but here's 10 things I didn't quit on that were really difficult. So maybe that's outdated. Maybe that's fake news. I absolutely, I love that. And I love the idea that actually there's an, there's an evolutionary process in trivializing our successes. Because as you say, if we, if we become comfortable, then the dinosaurs will eat us. So I think that goes hand in hand with what we stereotypically expect of teens to sort of downplay their successes, because actually either I don't, don't want to raise my head above the parapet and be known as the person who does well, but also then the pressure that they might feel to sort of repeat that performance. Whereas as you say, really and truthfully, this is a, a sign. This is a this is a symbol that that they can and so that they should. I mean, they, they should feel good about that rather than try to sort of downplay it and, and hide it from others. I think absolutely. I think provided we're in we're in competition with ourselves in that sense, then Absolutely fine. I think the important thing is to not associate those missions with our inherent value, though, and our worth. You should also be applauding yourself for trying. (laughs) You should also be applauding yourself for getting through the difficult thing or applauding yourself for turning up, even though you didn't feel great today or, or whatever else. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think I always say when I was growing up, so in the, I guess I was doing my GCSEs in the late 90s, you know, the worst thing you could say about a girl in particular was the worst insult you could give was that she loved herself. Who does she think she is? She loves herself so much. And now my job is to write books that help people to like themselves because people are seeing the value in, you know, the relationship between self-esteem and being able to do difficult things like navigate this difficult life. And so, you know, I wish I could go. I went to a school the other day and I spoke to some 15-year-olds and I was saying this and I was just, I I felt like I wanted to just plead with them. Like, please don't get to a stage where you have to unlearn. Like, just learn this way in the first place because a lot of us have had to unlearn all that stuff, haven't we? Hmm. 
that, and it is, it's, it is crazy, isn't it? I think we put so much store on what other people think of us and try to impress and, um, and not, not around necessarily the exams, but, but in terms of likability, popularity, whether you've got cool clothes, listen to the right music, to whether or not you can perform the right dance on TikTok, that actually these are, these extrinsic validations are nothing compared to if you can actually believe in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's so much more transferable. Hmm. So much more transferable. And it's also 24 hours. You know, if you start speaking to yourself like your best friend, like a motivational coach, like a cheerleader, then you don't have to log into anything. It's there. <laughs> Whenever you need it, in whatever capacity you need it. So yeah, I think our best bet for long-term sustained change and continued success is to see any mission that we're currently on to, to achieve a specific goal, to be running sort of concurrent with a mission to learn to speak to ourselves the way that we would someone we love. Hmm. That advice absolutely is something that I, from the first time that we spoke way back in season two is absolutely something I just keep telling um, my daughter that it's how would you how would you have told one of your friends to respond to the, the grade that you got or to those kinds of things because it absolutely does change that perspective and what I think I then love about the new piece of advice I'll be sharing with her about the um, taking photos of her moments of resilience or when she's done something well and being her own cheerleader, is that actually it comes completely devoid of any kind of embarrassment because she doesn't have to care what her friends think about her own self-pet talks because she, they'll never know. They don't need to know. It's, it's in the, the quiet and the reserve of her own headspace and room or wherever it is that she chooses to do. Which I think it's fantastic. It's what teens sort of cry out for, isn't it? I hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly hope so. Because we have got, we're in mock season for many um, exams are coming up. I wonder if you have any final words of wisdom for parents in particular, I think, listening. What are the kinds of things, I suspect actually this could be a podcast episode in its own right, that, that parents should be thinking about themselves in the ways in which they can try to relay some of these messages to their own children? I think focus less on what you don't want them to be doing and what they shouldn't be doing and focus more on where they're moving towards. Getting excited about the future can be a lot more interesting than sort of making sure that the threats like, you know, you might end up like this or you might end up like that as opposed to you could end up like this. That can help enormously. I think that focusing on strengths, reminding people in general of their accomplishments and again, evidence, examples of when they've managed to pleasantly surprise themselves and, and do difficult things. Reframing periods of challenge as necessary and predictable, you know, really normalizing them and saying there's, uh, there's absolutely going to be periods in this process where you don't want to do it. Let's get a plan in place for what we're going to do when that happens. Assume, assume it will happen. And so as a team, you're sort of anticipating what the support system will be in those moments where you don't feel motivated or you've taken a knock. Hmm. And I think it's a practically, actually, one of the things of the many things that I love in the kindness method is what you call a, the no excuses map. And I wonder if you could just share that because I think actually as a parent, that's a, that's a great example of something that you could do with your kids when you're starting to think about revision planning, think about the way forward actually is, um, it's, I think the, the no excuses map is a, is a fantastic tool. Thank you. It's about preempting the sorts of things that will make you want to go off track and mapping them out and thinking, okay, what things am I going to say to myself if I had to put money on it? And you could do this with, with kids. Like, okay, 
you know, almost like a self-awareness challenge saying, okay, if we had to put money on it, what sorts of things are you going to say to try and get out of studying? What sorts of things are you trying to convince yourself? Will you convince yourself are the case in those, in those moments where a task is undesirable or whatever? What are we going to do when that happens? Just assume it. What's our plan for when that happens? How do we make it so that you feel pumped again, so that you want to go back in and do this? What do you want me to remind you of? Another thing which can help enormously is let the child inform. Again, by the way, I have to say, every time I talk about kids, I feel like it's important to say, I don't have them. I'm wildly, clearly, just by virtue of not having them, underestimating how simplistic this advice is. And so I really do apologize to any parents out there who are thinking, what the hell does she know? Because you would be right. As a parent, I can tell you, I think actually that the simplicity of it, I think, is is what we parents need because we get overburdened. I think with with complicating this because I know my child, or not actually with my um, with my daughter, but certainly with my son, I would predict why he would procrastinate. I would then be able to tell you exactly what my response would be. I could predict what he. I mean, I've had like a chess game of an argument before he's even come back from school. So I think that's the parent perspective, I think, because you understand where it's going. So I, well, as I say, having read it in the book, completely love the dial back approach. So you don't need to apologise. I think it's a, an uncompromised virtue. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. One of the things we can do is sit shoulder to shoulder with kids and look at the mission ahead of you academically or otherwise and assume that there will be periods where you want to go off track. There will be periods where you want to abandon this plan. Take that for granted and let's get planning as to what support you will require during those those moments. Let's just let's assume that while you're good at something or enjoying it or you have a deadline or whatever else, it'll get done. But in those moments where you know you've got a bit of leeway or you could procrastinate or you could hold yourself back or underestimate yourself, what things do you do we need to tell you? What things do you need reminding of? What kind of things are going to make you feel pumped again? And start planning for things to not go to plan. I think because on the one hand, you can think, well, that could be quite demoralizing if I start listing the reasons why I'm not going to want to revise. But actually, what you're suggesting, of course, is that if you can if you can see what they are, and then we, we know this was coming up, we knew that you would not want to have to get up early on a Saturday. We've been through sort of devoid of emotion and argument what our response would be. So here we are. So let, let's deal with it in the way that we planned. Yeah, absolutely. And let's make it easier by preempting that it's going to be difficult. That's the other thing. You know, if you know that it's a morning thing, then if you if you anticipate it, you can make sure that your bag is ready. You can make sure that you sleep a bit earlier, even if it's that you just gear yourself up for it to be difficult. You know, for example, today I have a particularly difficult work day. I have a lot on. I'm working until particularly late. I started very, very early. And so I anticipated that there would be moments where I would doubt my capacity or I would, you know, feel slumps or whatever else. And so what I've done is I've made sure that I've got the right snacks in the house. I've, you know, I'm making sure that I'm getting air. I'm anticipating that it's going to be a difficult day. I'm not just kind of burying my head in the sand, hoping that if I kind of go la, 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 and go through the motions, it'll be okay. It's okay to acknowledge that things are difficult and to put, in order to give yourself the opportunity to put measures in place for that eventuality even if those measures are compassionately calmly reminding yourself that you knew it was going to be difficult but that you are capable of doing difficult things it's always a genuine pleasure to listen to Sharoon 
so much calm and sage-like advice that just seems to make sense. And I think always, I, I love that underlying idea that we should talk to ourselves as if we were giving advice to a friend. It's so often we're our harshest critics and we impose low expectations on ourselves. I mean, if we saw our friends doing that, we'd intervene. We'd tell them encouraging and affirming things. But when it comes to our own internal voices, we just tend not to. And I'm still chuckling at the idea that this might be an evolutionary necessity. But then again, there probably is a deep-seated primeval trigger that stops us from being complacent. Although you'd have to say that's definitely an overdrive in a modern age. To help overcome this, there are a couple of things that Shiru talked about that I will definitely be taking on with Emily. And the first is to encourage her to look at her past successes, the times that she overcame an adversity or maybe surprised herself, and when she bounced back from a setback. Now, we're not the kind of family that are going to sit around a campfire and do this as a group activity. But I think if we gave it a start collectively, it's something that then she could carry on in private. I mean, this is not for sharing. It's simply for her reassurance in times when she might be feeling that she can't achieve something or perhaps feel that it's all getting a bit much. The other idea of Shiru's that I absolutely love is the No More Excuses map. Now, this is something that I first came across in her book, The Kindness Method. Now, the book is packed with a whole load of great ideas like this. But I think this map stands out for me in a revision context because we know what the excuses are and that they're coming. Things like, I've already been studying at school all day, or what's the point, I'm just no good at chemistry, I'll do it at the weekend, or my all-time favourite, but no one is revising anything anyway. I mean, I could go on and on, and I'm sure that you could too. But in preempting these roadblocks, I hope that we'd be able to agree a way around them. In my mind, this is a bit of a sit down with M, once mocks are out of the way, perhaps this week. And by identifying the potential issues, M should be better equipped to call them out as an excuse rather than a legitimate justification. Also, when we come up with these, Perhaps it's a time to look at the compassionate advice, as Sheru calls it, that M should give herself if, perhaps when, she finds herself confronted with them. For me, one of the most important things about this process is to remember that that's exactly what it is. It's a process. We're not going to get it spot on from outset. And the key for our young people is to learn and adapt as things progress and to celebrate their successes as much as not being beaten up by the inevitable setbacks and bad habit relapses. My thanks to Shiru for finding the time to share her insights and to you for listening. If you'd like to be on a future episode and share how things are going, or perhaps talk through something that's playing on your mind, then please do drop me an email. The address is hello at thestudybuddy.com. And if you're looking for ways that you can help to support your own young person to fulfill their potential in their revision, then why not head over to the Study Buddy website? There you'll find a host of information about our innovative time management and study organising approach. And you'll also find a blog packed full of useful articles, hints and tips. To find out more, of course, head over to thestudybuddy.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode and got a lot out of it. If you did, I wonder if you'd mind leaving us a review and, if it's not too much to ask, a five-star rating. 
It all helps us to reach other parents who, just like the rest of us, are looking to make some sense of it all in the run-up to exams. Of course, don't forget to share the link to this and other episodes on your social media weapon of choice. It's all greatly appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.